0: Um, So many thanks to Carol and many thanks to uh, the Centre for Catholic Studies at Durham University and the Catholic Chaplaincy here uh, for the opportunity to speak to you today. For the past two years, as Karen said, I've been working with CAFOD and the University on a Porticus-funded project, the rather grand title of which is Climate, Covid and Conflict. Can Catholic social teaching show us the way through the storm? And It's not my title, it was someone within CAFOD who came up with it and it was too good a title to, to resist. It's a project where we listen to the experiences of some of CAFOD's partners and think about how Catholic social teaching might provide a framework for thought and action in response to these concerns. CAFOD, as I'm sure many of you know, works through locally based partners in the Global South. Many of these partners work in politically sensitive or dangerous areas. So in this paper, I'll avoid giving specific details of countries and programs. But just to give you a flavor overall, We've spoken to partners from four countries in Asia, three in Africa, two in Latin America, and multiple partners have been uh, interviewed in in, in all of those countries. We've also spoken to CAFOD staff here in the UK and overseas and to CAFOD supporters and volunteers within this country. We talked about three broad topics, lives and livelihoods, the impact of climate change and COVID-19. The paper I'm going to deliver today has a three-part structure, which will be uh, familiar to anyone who's used to Latin American theology. Following Pope Francis, I'm, I'm going to call these three sections, Contemplate, Discern, and Propose. So what do we see when we contemplate the world today? What do we discern when we look at the world through the lens of Catholic social teaching? And what action does that lead us to propose? So, section one, contemplate. What do we see when we look at today's world through the eyes of CAFOD partners? After many hours of listening, two things strike me. Firstly, the concrete situations that people find themselves in are necessarily diverse. But secondly, when looked at thematically, the broad issues facing people across the global south are remarkably similar. I'll outline some of these themes in the first part of this paper. The first theme is land. The relationship between people and their local environment has changed fundamentally during the last 70 years or so. Many partners (coughs) referred to a change in land use that is destructive in the medium to long term. Partners consistently pointed to increased use of chemical pesticides herbicides and fertilizers as being problematic. These provided short-term yields at the expense of the long-term health of soils, rivers and the human and animal life dependent upon them. Partners complained of river pollution and groundwater contamination and the use of chemicals which were prohibited in Europe. Farm input created a cycle of dependence whereby loss of soil microbiota necessitated the continuing use of inputs to maintain yields. Use of inputs was also economically problematic for smallholders as it exposed them to price fluctuations caused by factors such as demand and supply, speculation and currency movements. Partners complained of increasing government regulation prohibiting seed sharing and instead mandating the use of certified sterile seeds. This was part of a wider issue, whereby regulation covering areas such as ownership of livestock and access to markets increased the costs of small-scale farming. Issues such as these mean traditional small-to-medium-scale farms are largely non-viable under a uh, model of industrial agriculture. These push factors led to farmers selling or abandoning land. At the same time, pull factors such as the profits to be made from cash cropping mean large swathes of land are given over to monocrops like pineapple, soy or beef cattle for export markets. Overall, partners reported an unsustainable and damaging agricultural environment in which the link between people and land is broken and people are no longer embedded within rural communities, the way previous generations had been. Fewer people own more land, and this land is used in a way that hurts life today and in the future. The second theme was COVID-19. Only one partner noted the pandemic as being a major health crisis for the people they worked with. For many people across the Global South, the pandemic was primarily an economic crisis. This is most obvious in the place of day labourers who need to work today to eat tomorrow. Whole societies were shut down without any provision for these people. The closure of markets also affected farmers and market gardeners whose produce was left to rot. Inevitably, partners reported food shortages and price rises affecting the most vulnerable. Many partners were extremely clear that the issues were not localised but rather it was a flawed global economic model that the pandemic exposed. Long supply chains just didn't work under pandemic conditions. Centralised food distribution and export-led sales broke down. Fertilisers, pesticides, herbicides and seeds all became scarce. In addition to hunger, Many partners reported mental and spiritual health issues, including experiences of isolation, depression, alcoholism, and gender-based violence. The theme of a flawed global economic model was widespread. Partners' critiques can be grouped into two main areas. The first is that the global economic system is inequitable. The second, that it is unstable. That the system is inequitable has long been established beyond reasonable doubt. For example, in 2022, Credit Suisse were reporting that the top 1% of individuals owned 46% of the world's wealth and the bottom 50% owned less than 1%. Partners reported to us the experiences of those at the bottom of the wealth pyramid who struggled to survive from day to day. Partners' reports of the effects of the instability of the global economic system were also striking. Those without a reserve of savings or assets were exposed to enormous difficulties by issues such as imports affected by currency fluctuations, trading in commodities, inflation, a parallel dollar economy in some countries, and middlemen who pass on price rises but not price falls. Partners reported serious and continuing gender inequalities as the norm. Many of these have been exacerbated by the pandemic. Gender-based violence was widely reported. Some men took out their frustrations of being forced to stay indoors on women. Physical violence and rape were reported, along with an increase in unwanted pregnancies. Partners reported the cultural expectation that women continue during the pandemic in the dual role of housekeepers and providers of basics like food and fuel. Financial difficulties caused by the pandemic were sometimes ameliorated by the gains for, but from supplying girls for child marriage. Where the opportunities for education were limited, the norm was always to educate male children. Migration was also a, similar the- a significant theme. Almost all partners reported a high level of migration in their contexts. This was often people moving from non-viable rural communities to urban centres. These incomers would find themselves living in slum areas and eking out a marginal existence in the informal economy. In addition, localised conflicts often resulted in large numbers of internally displaced persons. There was also much movement between countries, This was for a mixture of reasons. Many people fled conflicts, but equally there were many economic migrants whose families survived on the remittances sent back home. Forming a pervasive backdrop to these themes was the relentless climate breakdown. Partners across the Global South reported an increase in extreme weather since the year 2000. Soil degradation was a concern in many areas, both because of farm inputs and also climate factors such as salination from sea level rises, or loss of topsoil due to deforestation and rainwater runoff. Fish stocks were so poor that small-scale fishing was largely non-viable. Partners reported an increase in pests, the most dramatic of which were the globally reported plagues of locusts in East Africa in 2020. The difficulty in surviving day to day meant that poorer people were reported as unconcerned by their own impact on the environment. Widespread tree cutting for charcoal, cutting cutting for cooking, heating and animal enclosures was reported, as was the burning of plastics in urban environments. Some partners reported the environmental damage caused by mining in their areas. Open casting left many areas of land unusable and polluted previously potable water. The final theme that can only be mentioned briefly is war. War is all-consuming. Partners in those areas where there was conflict necessarily saw everything through this lens. Even though they faced many of the issues I have already described, the immediacy of the conflict and the resulting trauma was so great that it eclipsed everything else. In addition, the invasion of the Ukraine took place during the interview phase of the project and the resultant rises in energy and food prices exacerbated many of the issues partners were already facing. Contemplated through the eyes of CAFOD's partners, we see a world writhing in anguish. Everywhere there are people on the move. ...fleeing war, famine, (coughs) poverty, and doing so against the backdrop of a denuded ecosystem and collapsing climate. The overwhelming impression left by conversations with partners is of a pattern repeated around the globe... ...in which people are no longer embedded within their environment, but have become detached. As the vulnerability of individual people has increased through uprooting from human contexts... The problems they face also seem to have broken free from the human context in which they were created and become overwhelming globalized forces out of the control of people and nations. These forces have swept the globe in a series of paradigmatic catastrophes since the beginning of this millennia and dramatically increased in frequency since 2020. The financial crisis of 2008 the 2020 COVID 19 pandemic, the locust plagues and wildfires, also of 2020, the 0.67 billion people facing hunger or famine in 2023, and the Third World War fought piecemeal, as Pope Francis calls it. One partner summarised the global situation somewhat laconically as we are moving from periodic crises to a protracted crisis. The second section is what do we discern from this? What resources could the Christian tradition provide for a theologian to bring to the discernment necessarily provoked by these stories? In this middle section I share where my own reading has taken me, while readily acknowledging it's only one pathway through the tradition. In a reflection for CAFOD staff last year, Charlotte Bray, who who most of you know, one of CAFOD's trustees, talked about the idea of structural sin, and I wonder whether this is a useful lens through which to begin to view these stories. Theologically, structural sin is a useful idea because it refocuses the concept of sin on societal problems and therefore opens up the possibilities for social action. But the word structure makes me think of something very solid and stable and that's not what's being described by the people we've spoken to. So I wonder whether we need a new image to capture what is happening. The image I want to propose for your consideration is the whirlpool or vortex. Imagine a relatively calm lake. Sure there are currents and eddies here and there but overall when seen from a distance it's pretty flat. This lake is a metaphor for the sort of stable, economically marginal but viable subsistence communities once found everywhere. Compare this to the current picture. All over the lake we see swirling currents, global movements of cash and investment, consumerism driving global trade, the rapacious search for raw materials and sources of energy. Once the livelihoods and lives of a community become unviable, a mix of destructive economic, social, political and criminal forces swirl around increasingly vulnerable people. These forces which are intensified by climate, COVID and conflict begin to interact with one another in complex ways and gather speed. The resulting complexes create whirlpools, or vortices, of destructive and sinful currents, which suck people out of their environments and drag them down into increasingly desperate and squalid poverty economic, mental, physical, emotional and spiritual. These vortices of sin reduce the ability of individuals to make free moral decisions, as their lives become a morass of increasingly bad options to choose between. Mining or unemployment, drug dealing or destitution, prostitution or starvation. This image of whirlpools of sin perhaps captures something of the current global reality seen as a whole. But what does it look like close up? In his history of debt, David Graeber talks about the material objects that we have in our homes. He asks, who first looked at a house full of objects and immediately assessed them only in terms of what he could get for them in the market? Surely he can only have been a thief. For thieves, material objects have no intrinsic value. What they really want is for the objects to be broken up and commodified, converted into cash, because cash has no history and can be accepted anywhere, no questions asked. Although not writing within the Christian tradition, Graeber's analysis is useful for the light it shows on concerns expressed by theologians about how the human person is understood. For example, contributing to Catholic social teaching's rich analysis of labour relations, John Paul II in 1981 warned that the worker should not be seen as an instrument. Or a tool of production because the worker was a subject and not an object. My suggestion is that we see in Cathod's partner's stories the outworking of the objectification of human beings. When people are detached from their communities by vortices of sin, they lose their history, their uniqueness and become fungible, interchangeable. Tools to be used in the mining industry, mules to carry drugs across the border, Bodies for sexual pleasure. For mine owners, drug barons, and the sex industry, people have no intrinsic value. What they really want is for communities to be broken up into commodified individuals with no history who can be accepted anywhere, no questions asked. Why might this be happening? Idolatry of money is sometimes suggested as a root cause. The underlying reason why the Bible, Warns against idolatry is that idols are not neutral and inert. When we invest them with our worship, they begin to have a curious power over us. Looked at in this way, the idolatry of money is a proximate cause of the fungibility of people in today's world. We have become like what we have valued, what we have invested with our spirit, (coughs) what we have loved. Can we look at the climate crisis in a similar way? Often, our analysis of climate breakdown ref- relies to a greater or lesser extent on causality. Put crudely, we emit too much carbon and the planet reacts badly. But the Bible never presents a deterministic world. Instead, it presents a creator and a creation the vine and the vine dresser, the clay and the potter. Yet, by the third chapter of Genesis, it also describes a fall and from then on God's providence is always set against the backdrop of a fallen humanity. Applying the idea of the fall to the climate crisis seems straightforward. Humans are fallen, so humans sin. This sinning includes polluting the environment. We are the cause and we see the effects in nature. But perhaps it's not so simple. In the end of the modern world, Romano Gardini describes something rather more subtle his description is important and worth quoting in full Quote, "the moment that energy or matter or a natural form is grasped by man it receives a new character no longer is it simply a part of nature it has become part of the world surrounding man which is man's own creation the thing of nature becomes involved with even partakes of human freedom" In so doing, it partakes of human frailty. It has become ambivalent, carrying a potential for evil as well as good. So if we find that nature has become ominous and distant, perhaps it's not simply a case of the estrangement of humanity in the environment, but rather a partaking by the environment in the estrangement of humanity from being itself. Put crudely, if when nature glances our way, It doesn't see the image of God described in Genesis but something that looks like an idol, fungible, and having no intrinsic worth. Why should nature not rebel against us in exactly the same way that we have rebelled against God? And maybe we can take this one step further. The Bible tells us that an idol has no objective existence. Its only power is that which we have invested in it. What then is this power and where does it come from? In La Dato say, Pope Francis issues a corrective to what he sees as a misreading of the Genesis' injunction to dominate the earth, teaching instead that the intention was that we till and keep the garden of the world. Yet if Genesis asks us to till the garden of the world, we must first create it. For the ancient Israelites, the world was no Eden. Rather, they were hemmed in on all sides by wilderness. In this context, Perhaps dominating the earth was felt to be synonymous with dominating the wilderness, a chaotic place of dark forests and desert wastes in which there lurked much that was hostile to humanity. Seen in this way, what was really being dominators were the chthonic forces felt to be at large in the earth, a rather more bracing task than a spot of gardening. Unfortunately, our conspicuous success in dominating these forces in the world at large has not been matched by our getting a grip on ourselves. Gardini suggests that the power with which we dominated the wilderness has now turned on us and got the upper hand. He gives us the option to look at this psychologically. If we did, we might say that the unconscious, through ruling much of our psyche, is therefore ruling much of the world. Alternatively, he offers us the explanation provided by the Bible and the constant tradition of the Church. If we followed this explanation, we would say something along the lines of once humanity abdicates responsibility and refuses submission to the Creator, we could become ruled by the fallen spiritual beings who oppose the Incarnation on almost every page of the New Testament. Either way, Gardini's conclusion is that the chaos of the wilderness has sprung up once more in the least expected of places, in the midst of that power by which we dominated its external manifestations so successfully. If this analysis does not immediately give us a road map for what to do next, it does at least indicate what not to do. In Laudato C, Pope Francis suggests that at its root, the current ecological crisis has been caused by the unbalanced and unhealthy way we have embraced technology. He calls this the technocratic paradigm. The classic work on the nature of technology is, of course, Martin Heidegger's The Question Concerning Technology. In this essay, he claims that technology is not an inert tool for human use. For example, in industrial agriculture, nature becomes stock in the accounting sense, a standing reserve, as Heidegger calls it, ready to be disposed of by us. This, he says, is the real danger, for we are a part of nature, so we become part of the standing reserve, the stock to be used in industrial processes. Technology reveals an inframing. concludes Heidegger. We are framed by it, caught, trapped, or imprisoned. There are some obvious similarities between Heidegger's analysis in this essay and Gardini. What we thought we had dominated, it turns out, dominates us. (coughs) It also takes one step further the fungibility of people, who are now not only commodified, but also available to be stored up for future use. If Heidegger tells us anything, it's that the solution to the chaos, climate and otherwise, wrought by our domination of the world by the technological paradigm is certainly not more technology. The third section is Propose. What can CST, Catholic Social Teaching, propose in the face of all of this? Perhaps the place to start is in a definition of CST itself. CST is a contextual and balanced tradition which seeks to chart a a pragmatic path between current extremes, while remaining open to transcendence and a completely other way of doing things. In Evangelii Gaudium, Pope Francis contrasts time and space. By space, he means the present moment of human history, a space in which we often feel limited and enclosed. By time, he means God working through history, This helps us to understand the above definition of CST. Firstly, the Catholic social teaching tradition is contextual, seeking to apply church teaching to the social problems of the present day. Because of this, it is immediately useful. Secondly, Catholic social thought and teaching also remain open to transcendence and the possibility of another world where things are done differently. Because of this, CST does not baptise any one social system, but allows God's Spirit the freedom to act in ways that overturn human assumptions. In addition to this theoretical conceptualization, Francis's contrast also points to the two axes along which we can usefully look for how we might operationalise CST in the world of today. Firstly, how has CST developed in time thus far, and how might it develop in the future? Secondly, what are the levels at which we could say that CST currently operates? Because of the contextual nature of CST, reading the papal encyclicals from Rerum Novarum in 1891 is something of a history lesson, and the vicissitudes of the 20th century are writ large across their pages. I find it useful to think of three phases of CST, and I've called these the intranational, the international, and the integral phases. Much of the first phase, before the Second World War really, deals with the in country relations between labour and capital. The second, with international development. And it's the third which is really of interest here. This third phase of CST has hardly begun. I've called it integral. But that's certainly not because integral is a new word for CST. For much of the tradition, the Church has understood CST as integral. Nor is it because CST's ambitions for integration have gone global. That already happened during the second phase. Rather, it's because there has been a step change in CST's understanding of what it seeks to integrate. Much of the CST tradition has been unconsciously anthropocentric, but recently Particularly in the writings of Pope Francis, it has moved to a deeper approach. We see this most clearly in Laudato Si, which calls for an integral ecology and seeks to stop us thinking of the earth as other and instead as our common home or following Francis of Assisi as sister or mother. So much for how CST seems to be developing along the axis of time. What about the axis of place? What are the spaces where we see CST operating today? Often CST is thought of solely in terms of the Papal Magisterium but its global and integral expansion in recent years is, I suggest, matched by a widening of what constitutes CST. Here I want to offer the suggestion of three levels of CST plus an image with which to link them together. I start with the image. In Evangelii Gaudium, Pope Francis offers us the polyhedron as a better way to conceive of globalization and specifically as a, of a right relationship between the global and the local. The Pope tells us that we should not conceive of the globe as a smooth sphere but rather as a polyhedron. Now my favorite and I suspect the Pope's favorite being Argentinian favorite polyhedron is the soccer ball. From a distance, a football is spherical like the globe, but look closer and it's a complex patchwork of hexagons and pentagons I had to look that up, by the way, (laughs) overlaid with swirls and splashes of (laughs) colour. That, says Francis, is what our world should be like, a patchwork of local colour and shape harmoniously sewn together into a unified whole. This is a reconciled diversity, which encourages deep local cultures, but cultures in dialogue, not isolation. This is a globalisation wholly different from the one-size-fits-all export of capitalism currently operating. If CST offers polyhedral globalisation of reconciled diversity, it does so on at least three levels. Of these, the most well-known is the Papal Magisterium. These documents offer a wealth of insights on specific issues, but do so necessarily at a high level of generality. At a median level of society, CST offers the Italian civil economy tradition. This shows what an economy of communion that puts people and their communities, rather than profit, at its heart could look like. Perhaps the easiest way to get a grip on this tradition is through the word civil itself. This conjures up the idea of civil society, the broad middle of society between government and individuals that includes a wide variety of organisations like clubs and societies, trade unions and guilds, big charities like CAFOD and tiny little unincorporated charities running say a drop-in in their local centre. It also conjures up the idea of being civil, being polite and courteous not taking advantage of the other, but rather seeking the common good. Pope Benedict pointed us towards this tradition in the social encyclical he wrote following the 2008 global financial crash, Caritas in Veritate. And it's been taken forward by an organisation sponsored by the current Pope, the Economy of Francesco, a movement linking thought leadership, business and civil society organisations. The civil economy tradition itself is locally rooted in Italy and so has a certain regional flavour. Its proponents, like Luigino Bruni and Stefano Zamagni, would be the first to admit it would look very different in other parts of the world. But the thing to take from it is the idea of the richness of organisation and groups in the layer between the state and the individual. Local churches also fit into this middle layer of society. A review of bishops' conference documents shows a movement from abstract and wide-ranging teaching documents that proliferated in the 1970s and the 1980s to much more issue-focused calls to action which have prevailed since the year 2000. The Economy We Want by the Bishops of Zimbabwe is an interesting example. It used a qualitative methodology canvassing the views of many hundreds of citizens and synthesise these into specific proposals on employment, education, health, labour rights, persons with disabilities, infrastructure and housing. Specific proposals were included under each heading. For example, under em- um, employment, the document makes four recommendations, including salary should be in line with the poverty datum line consumer price index and other economic indicators. This document shows a church actively working against a structurally sinful economy in a specific and localised way. The final of our three levels of CST we could call the grassroots. In his 2015 speech to the World Meeting of Popular Movement, Francis tells us not to expect a recipe for change from the Pope because no such thing exists. Instead, he challenges us to work together for change. But what exactly does CST say about any given particular issue? Well, I recently discovered it says rather a lot when I uh, examined the issue of taxation for a book chapter Anna Rowlands and I wrote for the Bishops' Conference. It says really specific things like make tax on labour moderate to narrow the gap between workers and owners. Through promoting wider share ownership. It says rich countries should accept higher taxation to help poor countries. It says that supposedly private profit should pay for the public infrastructure that it's dependent upon for those profits. Tax is just one example, but it points to a much needed project of analysing CST in all its forms and distilling what it says on specific. Issues into encyclopaedic and programmatic form. Anthony Annette, for instance, has recently made a good start on this from the angle of the economy in a book called Cathonomics. So in CST's current moment, there's a role for each of us, whether we are thinkers or doers or something in between. Gardini suggests that in the world that is coming, the Old Testament will take on an increasing importance. In Biblical Economic Ethics, Sacred Scriptures Teaching on Economic Life, Albino Barrera describes the period covered by the Old Testament from the angle of Economics. We see a world, a little like today, where poor people were vulnerable to price fluctuations, markets and fraud. Debt forced smallholders into indentured labour. The poor paid for the wars, the bureaucracy and the luxuries of the rich. Wealth was aggregated into fewer and fewer hands. The difference between then and now is that the modern situation is worse. Firstly, the scale is larger. Today, the picture is truly global. The second difference is technology. Fertilizers, pestil- pesticides, fossil fuel driven machinery, plastics and so on mean the destructive economic forces are now accompanied by destructive environmental forces. One response to what you could call the domination system in ancient Israel was the company of prophets that we see in two kings. This group was not only prophetic but also activist and self-supporting. When Pope Francis says that the future is in the hands of what he calls social poets who organise to carry out creative alternatives, perhaps he is asking for something similar to resist the current global domination system. These companies of profit really do exist in many parts of the world already, denouncing injustices and organising to provide land, labour and lodging to people on the peripheries. We shouldn't downplay their importance. In Let Us Dream, Francis quotes the Jewish Carmelite nun Edith Stein, who says, quote, The most decisive turning points in history are substantially co-determined by souls whom no history book ever mentions. Part of Cathod's role is to support these groups. Part of CST's role is to provide a theological framework for action. But all of this still feels a little like ameliorating the current domination system rather than transcending it. The ancient Israelites asked for a king to lead them out of their difficulties. But after the brief Davidic honeymoon, the king under Solomon became the focal point of the domination system. They tried something similar with the temple under the Hasmoneans, but that too became a centre of domination in collaboration with Rome. So they asked for a messiah. And what a disappointment he was. He failed to kick the Romans out, to distribute the wealth of the rich, or to prevent the religious authorities collaborating with Rome. But the other thing he didn't do was he didn't become the new center of the domination system. He opposed the powers of this world without aggregating worldly power. He opened up the possibilities for human society rather than closing them down. None of us know how might how God might act now to open up our possibilities once more. That is holy ground upon which we must needs walk barefoot. But in the meantime there is much work to do. Prominent among these tasks are systemising and explaining the insights of CST and empowering grassroots organisations across the globe. CAFOD continues to work in both areas. Thank you.